I think we vastly underestimate that like the biggest kind of scientific credit one can earn in this business is not really the number of grants and number of papers you publish. People talk about that all the time. I think the biggest thing is like who are the people you've trained and what are they doing now and you know what what have they kind of accomplished because that's where you can really kind of make an impact. Are you working in research trying to do the best science you can? Are you a team leader, a research assistant, postdoc, PhD student or any other type of scientist? Are you looking for a place where you can sit, relax and listen to inspiring people? Well, we have good news for you. You've just found what you're looking for. Hi everybody, my name is Renaud Pourpre. And I am Jonathan Weitzman. Welcome, Welcome to, to The, the Lonely, Lonely Pipette. Helping scientists do better science. Malik. I study genetic conflicts and evolution at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle, Washington. And I'm delighted to share my tips with the Lonely Pipette. Welcome, uh, Hamid Malik. So Hamid studied chemical engineering at the Indian Institute of Technology in Mumbai, India. He then moved to the US to get his PhD in biology at the University of Rochester in New York. And in 1999, he came to the Fred Hutchinson uh, Cancer Research Center, which is normally called the Hutch in Seattle to do his postdoc with Steve Hennikoff. In 2003, he started his own lab at the Hutch, where he has been ever since. Harmit studies the causes and consequences of genetic conflicts that take place between different genomes, host viruses, mitochondrial conflicts, or between components of the same genome, so chromosome competition at centromeric regions. He is interested in understanding these, what he calls, molecular arms races and how they drive recurrent genetic innovation from the perspective of both evolutionary biology and human disease. He is a, an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and a member of the U.S. National Academy of Science, amongst many, many other awards and uh, prizes. Hamit, thanks very much for coming to give tips to the Lonely Pipette. I've met you several times and I've always been impressed by your perspective. So we're really excited that we can share this with a, a larger audience. So Amit, thank you again for being with, uh, here with us today. We like in the show to start with what we call starter questions. And the basics of them is to know a bit path that have built the beginning of your, your scientist career. And for that, we want to ask you how you decided to become a scientist. So my career to biology took sort of a little bit of a circuitous path. I was uh, studying chemical engineering in one of the most prestigious institutions for engineering in India called the Indian Institute of Technology in Bombay. Um, it's fair to say that I was okay as a chemical engineering student. I was uh, There were some professors who were very interesting and to some topics that were very interesting, but it didn't really sort of you know ignite any sort of passion in chemical engineering for me. So I began to venture towards reading more and more biology textbooks. I was reading Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene. Um, and some of my uh, chemical engineering professors suggested that I should take this new class that was being offered at the time called Introduction to Molecular Biology by Professor Rao. So I sort of sat in on a few lectures, and it was amazing. He was an amazing lecturer, and the topic was extremely fascinating. 
but it became frustrating because uh, I was not able to attend the class regularly since this was a direct conflict with the class that I was supposed to take as a chemical engineering student. That was a hint to your conflicts, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that was already a conflict uh, in, in, in at the beginning of my conflict, exactly. Um, so he proposed a pretty unusual resolution. He said, well, if you're so interested, why don't you just come to my office uh, in the afternoon after I've given the lectures and we'll just go over the lecture notes one by one. It won't be in the formal setting of a classroom, but perhaps you might find this more interesting because, you know, everybody else who's taking this class has already taken other biology classes and you're sort of a little bit of a novice when it comes to that. I thought that was a fantastic idea. Um, so I started showing up and it was amazing. I mean, he was an amazing lecturer and the topic uh, was so uh, brilliant. Uh, we were talking about the engineering of the lac operon. And so for an engineering student, this was just a magical introduction to molecular biology. So this combination of uh, brilliant science uh, done elegantly and uh, absolutely fantastic mentor was really like a pivot point in my professional career. And from that point on, I was sort of pretty much transfixed. I really wanted to do molecular biology and specifically sort of evolutionary questions in molecular biology because I had these sort of two weird streams in my head where on the one hand, I was learning introduction to molecular biology. And on the other hand, I was reading all this subversive stuff that Richard Dawkins and his colleagues were putting out about selfishness and biology. And those two just merged uh, really beautifully. And I thought that it would be worth giving it a shot at studying selfishness in biology as a career. And so I sort of applied to PhD programs in biology, having zero classes on my official college transcripts. Instead, all I had was letters of recommendation from Professor Rao and from other colleagues who talked about my interest in uh, molecular biology. A really nice epitaph to the story was that I was able to take the final exam for the class in Introduction to Molecular Biology, and I got the highest score, even though I had not actually attended really any lectures, but I had this really perfect um, personal tutoring. So Professor Rao retired last year, and I was able to sort of see him and thank him for all that he had done for me. And I sort of asked him because, you know, I was not his student. I was not even a student in his program. Uh, why, we, why he would take so much time to spend, I mean, he spent uh, hundreds of hours, you know, really sort of teaching, with, uh, teaching me and getting me interested and, and going over things that I was reading. And he just said that, you know, I really didn't expect you to keep coming up. You know, I thought that you would come for a few sessions, then you would lose interest and then you would short, uh, stop showing up and you you just kept coming. And I felt like it was really not up to me to stop our sessions because you were so uh, interested. And this just sort of really exemplifies what a amazing thing uh, a really great mentor can be. And so I always remember this whenever a new student kind of walks in my door. I always remember what it would have been like from Professor Rao's perspective to have this crazy young student in chemical engineering walk in through his door. And I always think about the potential of not what the student is at that point, but like what they could be. And this is always a really good reminder of my sort of interactions, especially with young trainees, about recognizing their potential and not just what they are uh, on their CV. So, so there was a chance encounter that set you off towards biology. If you hadn't met Professor Rao, would you have been a chemical bio, uh, engineer? And if you if you hadn't been a chemical engineer, what 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 else could you have been? Well, uh, this is an excellent question, Jonathan. I almost hesitated to say that I was well on a track to trying to get an MBA after I uh, graduated with a chemical engineering 
degree and I probably would be uh, selling toothpaste somewhere, which is sort of like the very sort of weird way to talk about what MBAs do. Of course, MBAs do a lot more stuff than just sell toothpaste, but I had become more and more interested in sort of the advertising side of um, business. And so probably I would have gone in the direction of advertising and after getting a business degree, which would have been not a fantastic use of my chemical engineering degree, but I was just really delighted to have found something that really ignited my passion. And I think that uh, once you find that passion, it's totally worth the investment to see whether you can make a career out of it. You had the chance, you you seized it, and you were perseverant to, to, to keep going in this path. But what was the hardest part of this transition for you? I think the, there were two things that Professor Rao and my other professors did that was really kind of useful. One is they just opened a path to me that I didn't know sort of existed. That was a really important thing to provide me that introduction. But they also sort of uh, made it clear that there was, in fact, a path ahead uh, from a career standpoint. You know, so my first thought when I thought, well, I should probably do a PhD in biology was, this is crazy. Like, I have no business doing a PhD in biology. So the self-doubt about like, wait, what are you talking about? Like, you're a chemical engineer. Like, how can you go do a PhD or even apply to schools in biology? Um, and in fact, I didn't do so well applying for PhD programs in biology in India because a lot of them had knowledge tests. And even though I had really aced my introduction to molecular biology, uh, you know, there were like huge gaping holes in my knowledge of biology that would have prevented me from doing well in these entrance exams. And in fact, Dr. Rao said, well, that's not the end of it. I think you, you, you know, you have really good spoken English. You should Uh, take the these standardized tests for like the GREs. And I think you do really well in them. And I think you would also uh, perhaps do quite well in the subject test if you're you know willing to study because I, I can see that you're a good student. Um, and so what he did was he sort of said that it may not be so easy for you to get into the PhD programs that you'd like in India, especially I was interested in evolution and there were really only you know a few fledgling programs in evolutionary biology at that time. And they were deeply rooted in the fact that you did evolution pretty much most of your career, which I hadn't. He said it might be just easier for you to go abroad and do this. And here's here's a mechanism by which, you know, we could do. So I think what was his second sort of really important role was in my moments of self-doubt, he just created a path open for me. Sometimes as students, when you're kind of locked into your own insecurities and self-doubt, Mm-hmm. You really need somebody to say, you know, here's here's a path forward in your career, in your project. This is what sort of thesis committee meetings are really fantastic at, where the student is stuck. And, you know, the relationship with the advisor is at a very tenuous point. A, a, a committee member who comes in who's got, a, got this sort of uh, objective, dispassionate view is really in an ideal position to tell the student, you know, you really have this thing. I wonder if you've considered thinking of your studies in this other direction, something that the student may not have thought of or, or the advisor may not have thought of because they're really locked in uh, in terms of what they were trying to accomplish. And so having this sort of advisor who's really like a career advisor can be a really uh, beneficial thing. Um, the other thing that could be really fantastic is to actually have somebody who's walked this course before you. In my case, there were not that many people who had actually done this, but there was a, a college senior of mine who, have, who was a chemistry student and he had made the switch to biology and he had actually gotten admitted uh, into the MIT Department of Biology, which at the time was the most prestigious department you could get into. And the fact that he was successful was encouragement enough for me. I didn't really think about all the people who must have tried this. 
and were unsuccessful. I was just really globbing on to that one success story. And sometimes that's also what it takes a little bit of uh, just blatant optimism. Yeah, you took it as an example. Yeah. You talked about doubts. Did you ever consider leaving science? It is actually kind of really difficult to go through a PhD program without some doubts creeping in at some point. You could be one of the lucky ones where all of your experiments worked the first time, just like you intended. And, you know, perhaps you never face some doubt, but, you know, you're going to face some failure at some point in your career. And so I was in a way lucky that I faced that as a graduate student, um, where I was uh, doing a Drosophila genetics project. It was sort of you, kind of between years two and three of my PhD program. We refer to this as the blues period in the PhD program because our PhDs are typically, you know, five to six years long in the U.S. And I sort of realized walking home one day that this cross that I had spent six months on was not going to work. It was just it just came through in a flash. It was like, wait a minute, I didn't account for this. And It was it was a beautifully sort of a well done, well planned experiment, but suddenly these other facts had come through, and there was just it was just not going to work. So I sort of went home. And I just kind of clarified to myself that this was not going to work. And the interesting thing to me, in hindsight, was how excited I was to come back to the lab and start over. On the one hand, it also told me like maybe this would be a good time for me to just say, well, I tried this. This was great. Uh, maybe I should go back and do that business degree that, you know, my parents always wanted me to do. But the fact that I came back and I just I just really wanted to know the answer. I, I knew that this was a really good question. I knew that what I was asking was something that other people were not asking. It was unique. And I knew that the experiment I was doing was an imperfect experiment. So I was just really excited about coming back and starting the more perfect experiment. So I had this chat with my advisor and he agreed with me that my experiment that I was, you know, doing was imperfect. But he sort of said, well, you know, we could still learn a lot about it. And I just said, you know, if you're convinced it's not the perfect experiment, how about we just start the perfect experiment right now? I can't sustain both. So I should just drop that because that's not going to tell me everything. I realized that at that point, I didn't really have that chat with myself about whether this is what I should be doing because I was so excited. Uh, you know, I didn't do a good actuarial analysis about what this meant for my career, etc. I think, again, I was really lucky. I was a little bit fortunate to be uh, advised by somebody who was a really good advisor, but I was also a little bit oblivious. And sometimes that is also a good thing where you sort of like, you are not really taking stock of every minute and every month uh, of your career. You're just going where the passion takes you, which is why I think that, you know, I've met a lot of people who have been successful in many careers, business, film, music. And the thing that I find which is most interesting about the people that I truly admire is they had the same point, like they found this passion. And even though it wasn't clear to them that they could make a career out of that, that's what they decided to do. That was their number one thing. Mm -hmm. And they were all successful. Um, whereas there's a lot of people who sort of decided to do something because it seemed like the safe option that would give them a career. And of course, it has given them a career. But when I see them kind of socially, I wouldn't necessarily say that they're the most excited people that I've ever met. You know, they're, they're, they're doing a career, but they're not necessarily as passionate about what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. Speaking of which, in research, a lot of people uh, that continue in this career are, are really passionate about that. So you talk about the, 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 the topic that sometimes you, you were just drive by passion, going to the lab, trying to get the answers. But how did you choose the subject you have worked on on your career, a part of that going there for passion? 
Yeah, that's an excellent question. I've sort of thought about this a lot more in terms of why I choose to study what I choose to study. A lot of people are driven by it because it's actually something about the nature of the puzzle that drives them. Some of them are driven by the fact that they're actually studying a disease and what they do will actually like really cause uh, a drop in human suffering and actually maybe provide that. For me, it was just the the inherent puzzle of it all. So on the one hand, we had this picture of the cell as this perfectly orchestrated, I use the analogy to this perfectly, you know, engineered Swiss watch, which, you know, all the pieces need to fit and work really well together. And that was a view that molecular biologists were really elucidating for us, where the engineering principles of the of the cell uh, were really coming into light. And on the other hand, we had this completely almost mercenary view of biology where genes were basically being selfish for their own sakes, and they were kind of passing on themselves to their progeny, even if it was actually harming the host. And those two views were like in such strong conflict with each other that I thought, how could this be? Like, how could you actually have a Swiss army watch in which the gears keep changing or like, you know, somebody's coming in and stealing gears all the time. And I thought that like understanding how much of this uh, pervasive view of selfishness has shaped biology, uh, First of all, it was really interesting. And second of all, it could easily sustain a career. There were definitely some amazing people in the field already who had written fantastic reviews on the topic that were really inspirational. I mean, I mentioned Richard Dawkins, but then there were also people like Lawrence Hurst, Greg Hurst, Jack Warren. These people had written beautiful review articles, really laying out the expanse of how selfishness in biology could be so pervasive. And yet, very few of them were actually molecular biologists, right? They were really talking about biology uh, in a fairly theoretical sense. The, 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 the two fields lived in sort of different silos at the time, like evolutionary biology was in one silo and molecular biology was in the other silo. And here I was, this sort of hybrid product of, uh, you know, a new entrant into molecular biology, but also interested in evolutionary biology. And so I just thought that there was a, both from a passion standpoint but also, I think from a career strategy standpoint, there was just a lot to learn. And I thought that this could easily sustain a research career. You thought they were, they were a, a missing point in this field. So you could, you could maybe go and dig into this stuff. Exactly. I thought that between these traditionally very, very strong fields is where a lot of really interesting things can happen, right? This sort of uh, nexus between two fields that may not necessarily talk to each other as often as you would think. And I actually think a lot of the most interesting research uh, in the world today comes from this sort of interdisciplinary view where two traditionally separate fields have begun to talk to each other and suddenly recognizing the potential for this kind of research. Were there times in your career where you, you really switched from, from one topic or one field to another? And how do you know when it's time to switch? That's an excellent question because, you know, sort of understanding when it is time to like jump onto a new problem is, is both a matter of chance, but also, you know, it's one of those ascertainment bias things where if it worked, you really congratulate yourself for making the switch. And if it doesn't work, you sort of berate yourself for like wasting all this time and effort. Uh, I think perhaps the most interesting pivot point uh, sort of after I'd already made the jump into biology came when I started my lab as a junior faculty member. That was a huge pivot point for me because at the time, my entire research program was really faced on this sort of inter-chromosomal competition. You know, how chromosomes, even from the same uh, cell, could actually compete with each other in terms of transmission to the next generation, etc. 
But this kind of work is slow. I mean, this is evolution. This is rapid evolution, but on a geological timescale. This is not rapid evolution that you can necessarily study very easily in the laboratory. And then just when I started my lab, we went off to this retreat where all the faculty in my institute, uh, some of them gave kind of progress reports on work that was actually going on in their lab. Others talked about their field and what was really exciting about their field. And my colleague, Michael Emmerman, who's an HIV virologist uh, and already very, very well established at the time, talked about uh, work that had actually just come out um, from Mike Malin's lab, where they had discovered this sort of new sort of antagonism between host cells and the HIV virus. Here was this magical kind of example of an arms race going on between a virus and this host protein for survival. As soon as he mentioned this, like to me, the evolutionary implications are immediately obvious. I thought that, wow, this is an arms race and this is something we could easily study. Um, and he was, of course, very interested in it from a virology standpoint, right? Like what's the outcome of this arms race in, in terms of whether the virus is successful or not? And so even though we had these completely disparate interests, like I was an evolutionary biologist and he was a virologist, we decided that this might be a really worthwhile thing to study together. And I was encouraged both by the fact that he was just, he was and is an amazing colleague and mentor, extremely generous. But also we had this amazing group of trainees that we began to recruit to our lab, both graduate students and postdocs, who were really fascinated about this arms race uh, that was going on between hosts and viruses. Uh, and the most practical thing was this was an arms race that we could actually study in the course of a la laboratory rotation or even in the course of a thesis project, which was, you know, because it was just so much faster. And I realized that studying both these very rapidly evolving uh, host virus arms races actually gave us a lot of insight into the slower evolving uh, arms races that I was studying. And so both of these became really important arcs of my lab, but this was entirely a conversation that began because of this really influential talk that Michael Emmerman gave, as well as this very nice, amazing coffee that we had following this talk. So you often talk about the, the Red Queen hypothesis, which is, a, I think, an allusion to, to Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland. Can you just tell us a little bit more what, what that's all about? Yeah, so this is a th th there's actually like an entire podcast worth of uh, stuff to devote <laughs> to just the Red Queen itself. But the Red Queen, as you know, is this really uh, I think whimsical character uh, that was invented by Lewis Carroll in Alice in Wonderland uh, series. But there's a very memorable line that she says to Alice, where after they've been walking for a while, Alice notices that they've really not gone anywhere. They're sort of just in the same place, even though they've been walking constantly and she she asked the Red Queen, like, how come we're not, we don't seem to be going anywhere? She said, well, here, it takes all the running you can do to just stay still. If you want to actually go somewhere, you basically have to run doubly hard just to sort of make progress. And this idea, this sort of very whimsical line was really seized upon by uh, people like uh, Lee Van Valen and his colleagues who had really sort of began to study how uh, species were actually in conflict with each other. Uh, so, you know, in a way, you could argue that Darwin sort of really set the stone for thinking about uh, evolution via uh, natural selection, but he was still primarily concerned about adaptation to abiotic environments, how um, organisms can adapt to high temperatures or low, low temperatures. What Lee Van Valen and his colleagues realized was that a large part of your environment is actually made up of species that are competing with you for the same space um, in terms of fitness. And so 
it was really not possible for a species to just adapt to the abiotic environment. It also needed to adapt to all the competitors in that same ecosystem. And that sort of created this idea that there was this analogy to be made with the Red Queen where you just couldn't stand still because if you stood still, you ran the risk of being driven to uh, extinction by virtue of the relentless competition going on between these competing species. So just listening to you talk, is the Red Queen hypothesis a metaphor for scientific careers as well, running hard to, to stay in the same place, tenure track? That's a very astute observation, Jonathan. I think uh, my colleague Ishwar Hariharan, when I first talked about this at a meeting, he actually pointed pointed this out to me was that, you know, running hard just to stand still is a metaphor for lots of careers, but especially <laughs> careers like running a lab, which is very much like a startup business, uh, a, a low budget startup business to begin with. Um, I think I think there's definitely some metric to that. I think both from an intellectual standpoint, as well as from a practical standpoint, labs do run the risk of becoming stagnant. And I think uh, you, you can sort of begin to lose creativity if you uh, have been in a field very long and you're really not like getting any influx of new ideas, et cetera. Uh, but also from a funding standpoint, you know, it's a constant battle, as you know, it's a uh, you know, you're constantly writing and the vagaries and whims of the uh, funding agencies can sometimes dictate what is actually uh, work that you can actually study. Uh, sometimes the work that you find most interesting is not necessarily the work that the funding agencies want to fund you for. And so you have to be a little bit creative on both of those aspects. I think the intellectual aspect to me is a little bit more dire, though, where you could actually get so comfortable uh, in the space. And you basically, you know, there's even a term for that when you know, it's called Hershey Heaven, where you find something really great. Uh, this is named after Alfred Hershey, but it's also the name of the popular uh, U.S. chocolate, Hershey Heaven. So you <laughs> just find something that you're really good at and just keep doing that over and over for the rest of your career. Now, that is a potentially good way to like make sure that your lab is uh, really well funded. But I think that if I could predict what I would be doing five years from now, that would perhaps not be the most interesting thing. The most interesting thing is to actually find those, uh, you know, forks not taken in the road and go down them. Sometimes they're dead ends and you really regret going down those roads. But other times they're like magic, right? Like they really sort of open the door to creative new pursuits. And I think a really good way to marry this sort of risk uh, versus sort of uh, benefit analysis in the lab is to have a mix of projects, projects that are more kind of bread and butter projects that you can, you know, reliably make progress on uh, within the period that the funding agency will, would like to see, but always leave open the possibility of going down a new path that could open the door to something perhaps more interesting than what you're currently doing. Yeah, something long-term and short-term. Exactly, to, like to a diversified portfolio in your you know, stocks where you, know, you don't want to put all of your uh, investment into Apple. Apple is doing great today, but maybe it won't be doing so great tomorrow. And so you <laughs> want to maybe, uh, you know, diversify your portfolio a little bit. Exactly. You mentioned mentors so and mentoring. Can you think of, of good mentoring practices that you learned from your mentors and that you try to use uh, with your mentees? And and at the same time, are there, are there mentoring advice that you've heard that, that you really think is bad advice? You know, so I've been really lucky that I'm at an institution that really values mentoring. We have we have an award named after a, a fantastic mentor uh, that is given to faculty that they get nominated for by their students. 
This is something we really value as a community. This is not always the case in science that we value mentoring. Uh, we sort of often value the number of papers that people are producing and the you know the the amount of grants that they have rather than like the you know the the mentors. The the number one thing, which is a little bit of an aside to what you asked directly, but I'll get to that, is to recognize that you never run out of the need of mentoring. It's not that you become a faculty member and then you magically are no longer in need of a mentor. In fact, you're always in need of a mentor. Now, your mentors don't have to be people who are always senior to you. Uh, peer mentoring is often the most effective strategy. The advice I give to people who are facing imposter syndrome, like this idea of like, oh my God, I'm in the totally wrong place, like I don't belong here, is not to compare yourself to your esteemed you know, full professor uh, because, you know, there's there's a lot of career stages between where you are as a graduate student and where this professor is. And you have no idea what path he or she took to get to that full professor stage. Instead, your ideal role model should be somebody who's just one career stage ahead of you. So if you're a second year grad student, find a fourth year grad student who really seems to have it together, both in terms of work-life balance, but also is asking really good questions, etc. And then once you become a fourth year student, then maybe a first year postdoc would be the ideal kind of role model for you. And so sometimes the advice they give you is not always the same advice that you get from your official mentor. So it's also really important to know that there's no such thing as just one mentor. Even as a PhD student, while you have an official research advisor, you have this you know panel of advisors really that are really advising you on all aspects of your uh, work-life balance as well as the careers choices you might make. There's of course a little bit of a conflict of interest when you're a student in somebody's lab and they have a grant to fund your PhD or to do the project because, you know, the project that you want to do may not necessarily be the project that your advisor wants to do and vice versa. So recognizing these conflicts is really good to actually have a, a broader panel of people who is able to kind of advise you. Um, I think the best advice that I got as a, a mentor, which I definitely do believe, is that every trainee is different. The idea that you're going to have one approach that will apply like a cookie cutter approach that's going to apply to every single person who walks in the door is completely false. You're going to basically uh, ruin a lot of students' careers if you treat everybody the same. Their strengths are different. Their insecurities are different. Some of them might need a lot more of a psychological boost. Others might just uh, have the psychological confidence, but not really the technical skill to really plan out an experiment. So recognizing what each student uh, sees, and this changes, of course, as the student gains more and more confidence in some things, they might need more training in communication, for instance, or uh, in terms of writing the paper. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's the best advice I got was treat everybody differently. When I was in graduate st uh, school, uh, my advisor, we were five, I think, graduate students at a time. All of us were as different as you could possibly imagine. You know, I'm, I'm trying to imagine if I had a lab of five students that were so dissimilar, what I would do, and I think it would drive me nuts. So I have no idea how my advisor did it. And I think he did it partly by like letting us kind of find our way a little bit, but also by stepping in when it was really time for you know, him to say, like, look, you really need to meet this milestone and, 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 and provide this kind of guidance. Some people are a lot more hands on. Some people are more a lot more hands off. I think you just have to be true to who you are and be uh, very uh, 
honest about what your style is when somebody walks in your door about potentially joining your lab. If you pretend that you're going to magically change like your methods because this amazing person has come in and you want to tell them anything that they want to hear because you want them to join your lab, that's, I think, dishonest. And I think it'll ultimately reveal a conflict. So I think you should just say, like, look, here's my style. We will also obviously like develop projects together. I'm I'm a very hands-off uh, mentor. I thought that the best part in my graduate training was the freedom that I had to develop my project. I want to provide that to my students, but actually that doesn't work for a lot of students. I would say that probably doesn't work for like two-thirds of the students um, who need a lot more structure and a hands-on mentoring. And I just point out that that my lab might not, you know, my lab is a great place, but my mentoring style is not so structured. And and I'm very honest with them because I want them to find, you know, fantastic fits. I want them to be all successful, even if that's not in my lab. And I think that's a hard thing to do to sort of uh, restrain your enthusiasm to get this fantastic student, but also recognize that in the long term, this might not be a, such a great fit for the student in terms of a mentoring style. So the best mentoring advice was like treat every student differently. Um, the second is do not underestimate these students, right? Like do not underestimate how good these students can be. Like if I look back at some of the best graduate students I had, like some of them were obviously fantastic. As soon as they kind of came into the work, I mean, they were creative, they were asking fantastic questions. And others were, I will use the word shy, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but or timid in terms of what they could do. And by the time they left, they were like powerhouses. Like they were, they were far better than I was at their stage or perhaps any stage of their career in terms of how brave they were in thinking about their science, how accomplished they were in terms of their scientific skills. And it's really important for me to know that that potential exists in every person who comes in. And so not dismiss people because they don't just have the right training or the right pedigree uh, that sort of uh, allows me to kind of consider that. And that's really hard to do because you get locked into your own prejudices and stereotypes in terms of what a person can do and all. And honestly, it's a work in progress. I can't say that I'm fantastic at it even now, but I constantly remind myself and I'm surrounded by people, including some senior staff in my own lab who call me out on my bullshit sometimes. I, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that on French uh, radio, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you, you need people who kind of keep you honest about that. Um, the worst mentoring advice I got was sort of like the opposite, which is it's my way or the highway, right? Like here's a style. If it doesn't fit for you, see you later. I mean, the fact is that people are very different. And if you want to run your lab, like it's like a feudal system, where you know you're like the head landlord and everybody else is kind of working under you, and unfortunately there are some very successful labs that do run that way. Um, it makes for a pretty miserable, albeit successful experience because you do leave with papers and you're excited about you know just getting out of the lab <laughs> because you know you were successful, you got you got your papers done, but often um, you burn out because you don't feel so well supported by the lab. You're just a cog in the machine, and I think. Uh, labs that are really big in size often can fall into the trap of basically just looking at um, units of productivity rather than these amazing people whose careers you have a chance to kind of nourish. So I am a big believer in sort of small to modest size labs such that you can actually think about each project and you can 
pay attention to the careers and the career prospects, even after people have left your lab and you're deeply invested in that. Um, I think it's possible, but I haven't really seen a fantastic example of a large lab that is able to do this, right? Like, you know, obviously the large lab means that you have access to a lot more resources and you're able to put a lot more resources in the student's path, but that doesn't necessarily always lead to a more uh, enriching mentoring experience. I do see a lot of people who I thought were brilliant, who sort of... um, not for the right reasons, decide to leave academic science, not because uh, they're not interested in academic science, but they think that it's just not an a appropriate um, work-life balance for them. So, so speaking about mentoring before, you have to recruit them. Um, so we wanted to know if you, you, if you have a favorite question that you ask in interviews to know better the, the person or just something that you really love to ask to surprise them or... I don't have a lot of trick questions, but I do ask occasionally people, especially people who, who we are hiring at very young stages, like a research technicians or a post-baccalaureate student who are sort of pre-graduate school. They've not made the determination they want to go on to graduate school or not. But we, I just ask them, what is the most creative thing that they've ever done? <laughs> And what are you looking for there? I'm looking for anything. Actually, once we had somebody who talked about You want how, to be surprised. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and I, I think creativity can take many forms. We had one student who talked about how while helping his dad in this home improvement business, he was able to figure out a way to get like a a very specific bathtub installed where like it really didn't seem that it was possible and and he really got into it and I was mostly just trying to see <laughs> I, I didn't really know anything more about bathtubs at the end of that conversation but what I was really interested in is like what he thought was really important and also how excited he became when he realized that he had actually the perfect solution to that problem And that's kind of what I'm looking for is like people who are interested in solving these puzzles, you know, getting trained, but also are excited about what they're doing, even if that was not in science. Uh, an another person talked about how they were able to do this fundraising for a program that they uh, ran as a college student, where they really creatively went after um, donors, uh, you know, using a combination of bake sales and and sort of really targeting them and and ended up like raising twice the amount that they had initially targeted for by this kind of creative approaches. I just, um, I just think that, uh, you know, you can't really measure creativity in one way, but I think if you are creative in one pursuit, you're actually quite likely to be creative in other pursuits. You know, as people know, um, I'm not a very good musician. I probably have a tone deaf ear, but uh, you know, there's a lot of people who are very talented in science, but also in music. And, and it's just a way for them to express their creativity in m multiple ways. So I'm definitely looking for people who are, um, you have been creative and I'm interested in what their own example of creativity is. And, but mostly I'm actually just picking up on their enthusiasm. You know, sometimes you can not get a good read on a person, especially in an interview, if they're trying to sort of present a face of what you're expecting to see in an interview. So getting them in the comfort zone where they're thinking about like something that really got them excited when you can see their eyes sparkle, <laughs> that's when you can truly evaluate how this person is going to be as a fit to your lab. Do, do you think you can spot what makes a good scientist early in their career? I can definitely spot some people who are going to make it, but I suspect that uh, a lot of people would be able to do that on the same criteria. I think the challenge is to find the hidden diamonds in the rough, the, the people that you know 
have the potential to blow out anybody um, you know from the water but may not actually have the right pedigree or the right cv that convinces you but this conversation and their ideas just like remind you you know of the potential that they might actually hold that's actually i think the bigger trick uh, especially as a junior faculty member where you're basically you know competing with all the top labs in the field how do you recruit people to your lab compared to their labs which you know have a lot more resources and i think you have to be a lot more creative and be able to look at these hidden diamonds in the rough don't underestimate the power that somebody who's got this sort of i would say chip on their shoulder to prove themselves when they know that they're actually better than what their cv suggests and i think that's not a skill that i always consistently have like i've definitely made some very stupid errors in terms of um not making offers to people that i should have or uh but thankfully i have not made offers to people that i have regretted like i think that you know i i have become a little bit conservative on uh, at certain times but everybody who's uh come to my lab has something that they had to offer and for the most part uh they've actually lived up to that we're going to switch uh, gears a little bit um moving towards the break to talk about science communication and and publishing in the largest sense and i want to start with uh, something that you're extremely well known for you have over 14,000 twitter followers and you're there all the time that's so, a lot so, <laughs> and uh i mean you're you're one of the twitter scientists that that I that I follow the most so, so so what made you decide to invest so much energy in, in twitter and what, what why do you think it's important yes i i'm not actually 100% certain that the 14000 followers are all human people uh, <laughs> i i'm i'm actually pretty convinced that about 9000 of them are uh you know computer bots from uh, russia or china uh, that are kind of following me uh, uh but uh I think I think I was sort of drawn to Twitter initially because I I was looking for the sense of community beyond what I could actually um find locally. Um I, I must admit I was partly sort of driven to Twitter because I just wanted to uh find an outlet for my frustration with how politics in the US but also elsewhere in the world was actually going and I was just really disturbed by choices our political leaders were taking um and then i sort of found that there were other people who were similarly disturbed by the direction the world was going in and even just recognizing that that i was part of this sort of small community of scientists that i could actually talk to and interact with at twitter was really kind of really great the other really nice thing about twitter is that it really doesn't really have the same hierarchy that academia does right like so it's not that a graduate student is going to think three times before they actually post something to uh to a full professor it's pretty you know it it's pretty flat the hierarchy is flat and i really relished that because there've been many many aspects of my own mentoring and my own science that have been strongly shaped by something that a graduate student said about the difficulties that they're facing uh perhaps with their own advisor you know even though it's not the same situation that applies to me it is one of those things that i begin to see some shades of how my own graduate students might be actually facing the same thing that i maybe not paying attention to and uh so i definitely think that twitter has you know th- the potential to waste a lot of time but i think if you use it well it has the uh potential to 
really open your eyes to beyond the privilege that you are in. For you, it's 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 a place where you can hear uh, other information that you couldn't get, and you can also go and apply again the mentoring advice you just told us. Yeah, I, I, I mean, if you have something to share, uh, that's worthwhile. It's definitely a, a really good forum to, I think, finding examples, not just me, but there's some amazing people to follow uh, who are massively accomplished scientists. Like you, would, you wouldn't believe how re well-respected they are in the scientific community. And they're perfectly human. You see a human side to them. You see their failings, their frustrations. You see kind of mm -hmm. all the sourdough bread they've been baking over this break. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think it's just sort of humanizes the process. I think it's actually really good for, for people, uh, for trainees, especially to see their advisors in the light where you recognize, look, they're, they're not just this sort of automaton that you go to and complain about, like your research, etc. But also it's, it's actually really important for advisors to see what trainees in their own lab might be feeling, but might be too fearful to share with them, you know, about their experiences, etc. So, so in a way, I, I always look at these uh, postings as uh, an opportunity for myself to evaluate whether I could be doing better as a mentor. And I, I can't necessarily say, as I said, it's always a work in progress. But I can honestly say that I am improved some aspects of my mentoring style because of things that I read on Twitter that didn't really come from my own students, that came from other students, then I realized, okay, I should be doing this as well. Um, there, there's a lot of things that, you know, we do uh, take for granted because it's tradition and that's just the way it was and PhDs were really hard and, you know, qualifying exams are supposed to be hard, etc. And then you begin to reevaluate when you look at the perspective from a student who's going through that, it actually doesn't make sense to do it that way. I mean, this is this is a stupid way to do this, to put these students through even more hardship than than they need to just because that's tradition it doesn't make any sense whatsoever and so twitter is a really great way to kind of take apart what has been these sort of traditional kind of things that we really said oh that's a cornerstone of academia it's actually not it's actually just one of those stupid traditions that have always existed that almost feels punitive um, and just like creates even more of this feudal structure between advisor and trainee. And I think the more of these that we break down, the more welcoming academia is going to be for people from typically underrepresented minorities, including women, but also recognizing that, you know, as you welcome these folks uh, into, you know, into your field, uh, you need to make sure that your field is welcoming for them. I do learn a lot from it. And that's the main reason why I'm on it. Did you ever get an opportunity about a project or a research science after a tweet? Actually, there's a project that we are currently doing. Uh, I, I don't know whether it's going to work out or not, but th that actually completely came about because of a discussion that ensued when a paper was posted uh, by myself. And somebody said, well, how, did, how do you know that this was not the case, that then alternate hypothesis was not tested? And then I realized that actually this was not tested and this was suddenly a really great uh, opportunity but i didn't have the skills or the or the resources to fully study this but the other person who actually uh, works in Czechos in the czech republic actually has like the perfect reagent but he doesn't have the same tools that we do possibly i would meet this person 
maybe once, you know, in a scientific kind of lifetime at a meeting and we would have this face-to-face conversation over coffee and that would create the possibility of the collaboration. But that possibility exists every day. I mean, it it, it exists with people uh, all over. I mean, the only really positive thing that has come out of this uh, work from home break that we are all facing across the world is we have the shared experience. This is a shared experience. All of us are going through this no matter where we live. But it's also actually given us the opportunity to fully invest in these virtual seminars, right? Like we are all basically listening to seminars um, from fantastic uh, individuals that we would normally never get the chance to see or we'd have to travel thousands of miles to go see them. And they're coming streaming to your desktop and they're, they're, they're the same opportunity. In a way, Twitter is like that. You're basically making yourself available for people who might need you for advice, but you're also... Uh, just creating kind of your own input into this mindstream. Now, there's a lot of stuff that will waste your time and a lot of stuff that will drive you crazy on Twitter. So if you're going to engage, you need to be a little bit brutal about how you police your interactions because it will drive you nuts and you could actually end up wasting a lot of time. But the really nice thing about Twitter, which sometimes you feel you had that in real life, is the ability to just block conversations and mute people and, and mute. Block, block them. And, and, you know, it seems like a rude thing to do, but absolutely necessary for your sanity because some of the people who are participating have absolutely nothing constructive to offer. <laughs> and as soon as you figure that out, you should just block them and without, without a you know, second thought, uh, because there are people who have a lot more to offer, but they could be drowned out by these other voices, the cacophony that could be on Twitter. So, being judicious about whom you follow. I would say that if you're new, follow only a few people in the beginning. And then as you get to know more people, including your peers and, and role models, etc., you can give, give an opportunity to follow more. So, so I like this idea of challenging traditional ways of doing things. And just so just to round up the first, before we take a, a break, to round up the first half. So I, I saw you tweeting last week and I know you have a lot of thoughts about things, something that, that drives all of us mad, which is questions about scientific publishing and, and, and new models for scientific publishing. So do you want to share some thoughts on, on peer review and publishing and, and sharing data? I think the most uh, I think the most easy way for me to summarize what I feel about uh, my pet peeves about scientific publishing is that it's always struck me as being more adversarial than it needs to be. You know, when we when we give advice to our colleagues about their papers that you know we are reading, not as a reviewer but just as a reader, our main goal is to be constructive and to help them improve their paper. That actually was the original goal of, you know, peer review was like to, you know, make sure that the literature is uh, well reviewed, you know, drivel doesn't make it into the published pages because that would ruin it for everybody. Now it's become like this sort of battle for these coveted places in these very, very prestigious journals that, you know, are perhaps more precious than, you know, the vehicles people are driving in terms of like the impact that they might be having on their careers or at least the perceived impact. So that has led to this somewhat adversarial nature where you could have a perfectly good story, but like the reviewer feels compelled, force you to do work that is absolutely unrelated to the work that you initially intended to do in your paper, just because the reviewer needs you to 
get like their pound of flesh, you know, like, like, yeah, but like you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're sending this paper to nature. Yeah. How, how can you, even though you've invested three years of work, I think you need to invest another year's worth of work. Now the tragedy, there's two tragedies here. One tragedy is that the work is still unpublished. Uh, and that tragedy has been really nicely affected by the uh, preprint movement where people are able to put works that they think are complete pieces of work on bioarchive or other preprint servers and that way the community can see them without waiting for the sometimes two years of wait that uh, people do so that tragedy has been partly averted which is one of those amazing things that actually technology has brought but the tragedy is that we continue to do this we continue to do this as peer reviewers we continue to do this as editors where we don't basically silence the uh, voices of these obnoxious, you know, sometimes peer reviewers who are not really driven by like the same spirit of collegiality, but they're really kind of in this acting in this adversarial spirit. But I think the biggest tragedy of all is that authors feel compelled to respond to this because they think that publishing your paper in this top tier journal is really the key to your career progressing. And that's the biggest strategy. You see these amazing papers. I mean, amazing papers. These are brilliant, you know, once in a lifetime type papers that you see their initial submission date and their final publication date, and they're separated by years sometimes. You think about that, right? Like, the you know, two, three years have passed and perhaps the, the full professor who's the senior author can take the risk of like having this paper. But think about the postdoc or the graduate student, all those opportunities that they missed out on while their papers was just like, uh, you know, I just think about the sheer man years lost to science because of this. And I think the third tragedy is something that is actually something that I'm deeply interested in is to get beyond this point where we feel that the only path to success is having a paper in the holy trinity of cell nature or science. And anything else means that you don't get a job. And I think in the US, we've begun to do a much better job of that, frankly. I think we've uh, begun to recognize that there's good science being published in like the best community journals. To date, my best two papers that I have published in my entire career to date uh, were in community journals. One was in genetics and one was in molecular biology and evolution. And I don't care what the impact factor is. I know that those were the two most impactful papers that I've ever published. And yet we have this sort of impact factor driven uh, metric that is, uh, I think, vicious and vitiating. And the problem is that the people who succeeded and benefited from that system are really keen to perpetuate it because that sort of, uh, you know, really is tied into their into their prominence in the literature. But, you know, uh, other journals have stepped in. Uh, I think journals like, you know, the Plus Biology or eLife, et cetera, have made it clear that you can actually have a high impact, high prestige journal that doesn't play this game, that there's not like this hidden prize at the end. Now, the inflection point is that is eLife going to remain where it is? Uh, are these journals going to remain? Or in their efforts to become more and more prestigious, are they going to venture and become now the holy four instead of the holy three? And, and that would, of course, be another tragedy. And and so it remains to be seen which way we're going to go. But I'm very optimistic based on the uh, editors in chief that are hired at these journals that I think we will be able to play this dance of being accessible and high value and high prestige without being this kind of career ender, really. That's great to, to hear your thoughts. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to have a more discussion about the real Harmat Malik. Hey, folks, don't run away. You're listening to The Lonely Piper with Renaud Pourpre and Jonathan Weissman. 
where our goal is to help scientists do better science. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more, you can follow us on Twitter at Lonely Pipette and please share the podcast with your friends. If you don't want to miss any of our future episodes, you can subscribe to our mailing list and join our community. Click on the subscription link on our Twitter account. It's as simple as that. Take a few moments to get more tips from the Lonely Pipette. After the short break, uh, we're back and now we're going to ask a few more questions about your philosophy of life and your lifestyle. Starting with, do you have a morning routine and what's it look like? Well, my morning routine uh, revolves around my children. When uh, they're both teenagers in high school and their school begins obscenely early in the morning. So essentially the morning routine uh, on a weekday is just scrambling breakfast, lunch, and and making sure that they're out the door in time. And then uh, we have about like 45 minutes to 60 minutes to sort of relax and chat, me and my wife, after they're kind of dropped off at school before I head off to work as well. And uh, just think about like things that we are doing. We have breakfast together. and It's a nice sort of relaxing uh, time where we have tea and breakfast and, and do that. When my kids were younger and their school started later, I used to spend maybe 45 minutes to 60 minutes after I woke up just dealing with stuff that I really needed to deal with, you know, uh, papers that are pending or in my pile that reviewers that need to be assigned or uh, sometimes uh, decisions that need to be made about papers. I rarely made decisions in the morning, though, unless I've already read the reviews and the paper uh, the night before or something. Mm -hmm. So this one hour of like dealing with you know, stuff that I need to do basically means that I don't have to spend that time for the rest of the day. And and really, as as you know, uh, the most precious thing that you can have as, in a, as a scientist, but perhaps as any any career, is your attention span. So having uninterrupted attention to a topic, you know, is is just gold. It's like it's 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 amazing. And so not having the constant ding ding of your email or or, or whatever going on, um, it's it's really a pleasure. So. I try to do many of the tasks that require me to not pay a lot of attention that I can do while doing other stuff in the mornings and the evenings. And so in the middle of the day, I can actually devote that to having conversations with my students or reading papers um, and, and talking about that stuff. So even though I do appear to spend an inordinate amount of time on social media, I am pretty conscious about the fact that that eats into my kind of uninterrupted attention time space. And so when I'm in that zone, you know, I will definitely take hours off and I pay myself back for that time because that's actually the most valuable time. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that's as we are all working from home, especially those of us who have kids, we are beginning to recognize how precious that uninterrupted attention span is. Um, You know, for, for me, the only way to get that is to wake up really early before my kids wake up or work really late after my kids have gone to bed. But I have teenage boys, so there's no way to outlast them. So I have to do it in the morning. Um, so what is something about yourself that people would be surprised to discover? Perhaps the, the biggest surprise is that, uh, you know, I still consider myself a work in progress. And there are still aspects of biology. I mean, I'm in the National Academy of Sciences, which is considered one of the biggest honors a US scientist can have. 
And yet somebody can tell me something, which is a fact that they learned in college cell biology, that I go, oh, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. And they look at me thinking that I'm insulting them and or making fun of them. <laughs> but I actually genuinely didn't know that. And I live in constant recognition of the fact that, you know, there are lots of really interesting things in my own field that I actually don't know. I'm constantly learning. And you know, I don't view that as an insult that I didn't know this or so. I just think about that. Oh, that's another thing that I need to look up because that's way too interesting for me to not know about. I think the biggest sort of uh, thing about me is that they're like, if you were to paint my knowledge of biology, uh, you know, or, or make an analogy to my knowledge in biology uh, to like a food item, it'd be like a Swiss cheese. Like there's definitely lots of <laughs> holes in there. And, holes. you know, those are holes that I am not proud of. But I'm also like, you know, this is just the way it is. And I'm really proud of the choices that I did make to get to the mm -hmm. rest of the cheese. And so I think other people should also feel the same way is that, you know, we constantly live in fear about our insecurities about what we don't know. And I think the one thing that I am pretty comfortable with is that there's a lot I don't know. But I know that I don't know that. And I'm actually okay with that. We have heard that you are a science fiction lover. Do you think it influenced your way to think and maybe write science? I think reading extensively is definitely important for writing well. What I will say is that I am a big fan of very good writing. Uh, and the good writing does not have have to be in novels or science fiction, etc., Sometimes I will actually just save a paper, even though it's actually only peripheral to what I'm actually working on, because it's just an exceptionally well-written paper or an exceptionally well-written review. Uh, you know, it evokes all the sort of poetry in your head when you read the paper. The words are beautifully laid out, etc. I don't, my writing doesn't evoke those same emotions, but I'm always aspirational and I'm, I'm deeply envious, in fact, of people who are able to almost effortlessly write uh, beautifully Um, my postdoc advisor, Steve Henokoff, is an example of somebody who I had the pleasure of writing a paper with, where we sort of sat in a room and started writing a paper. And he said, "Okay, so what, what do we start with? And then there was a string of unconnected thoughts that I sort of spewed out along with another postdoc uh, who was sitting in the room. And so Steve kind of hovered over his keyboard, then he typed something out, and then he read what he had written. And it was beautiful. I mean, it, I had like no, it, it, you know, scientifically, it was like actually similar to what we were actually talking about. But in terms of actually grammar and like construction, it was it was gorgeous. But I think he really has devoted years to this kind of craft. And I think one of the one of the things that I've taken away from his mentorship is being harder on your, on your own writing and being a really good editor of your own writing uh, so that the finished product uh, is really good. Uh, it's not just enough to just put words on paper to relay what you've written. I, I don't believe that. I, I think your papers should be a pleasure to read even years out of the fact, because many people will read them years after the fact. They're not like, you know, current news or something that is going to be not relevant in six months. And so we should write papers with that perspective. Now, that takes a lot more time and uh, a lot more frustration on the part of like trainees to go through. But, you know, most of the drafts in my lab of papers that we really deeply care about, you know, go through easily three dozen drafts of back and forth, you know, between people and, and messing. That's actually part of the process is learning to kind of communicate your science beautifully uh, is just as important as the editor's role when they're editing like a, a really good science fiction novel. And the role of a good writer is obviously, uh, you know, very, very important, but the role of a good editor cannot be overstated.
So now, Hamid, if we move to a different topic, a bit more challenging, we are going to talk about challenges and fears. We would like to know if you can tell us and to our listeners about a major fear that you have had in your career. Oh, there's too many. I think this would take up a whole hour. Uh, and I think as you grow older, like your fear, you 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 lose some fears and you gain new ones. So it's a it's a. I think the biggest I think the biggest one is to not be relevant. I think every every artist, uh, every scientist feels that in some way, right? Like you, the the work you're doing is just not relevant or important enough. Uh, you know, the fact is that we are all, as we grow up, we all belong to communities and we do deeply care about, whether we like to admit or not, we do deeply care about what they think of you, right? Like there are, you know, at least a dozen scientists that I am very deeply appreciative of and I really truly do value their opinion. Like I, I really, you know, it doesn't matter what the editor of this prestigious journal thinks, Uh, you know, a really kind word from this person, like early on when a career was like a real boost uh, for me and uh, very appreciative. And I try to pay that forward to junior faculty or trainees now where, you know, I'll drop in a word unsolicited saying, I read your paper. I just want you to say like, this was fantastic. And that kind of encouragement is like a real like power surge, like a Red Bull, you know, if you know what that is, it's like a caffeine jolt and keeps you going. How do you deal with the, this, the fear of irrelevance that's that's really tough right well i think i think the the biggest sort of guard against being irrelevant is to just becoming stagnant is what i mean like i think stagnating is like one of the biggest fears i think a scientist can have but actually that's probably true in any realm of science or art where you uh, you know you run the risk of basically losing your creative edge i, I must say that Creativity for me is not an uh, individual enterprise. I think what I like to do is to surround myself uh, in my lab with people who share similar visions of, of, of being relevant, being creative. And, you know, even though in the beginning of my lab, I could have argued that like lots of the creative projects were coming from my head. That's not been true for a very long time. I think uh, like surrounding yourself with people who are as or more creative than you ever were and just being able to kind of like go with their vision is I think one of the really nice ways that labs can kind of keep creative. Now, the, the challenge is you just want to do it to the point where it's mutually beneficial for the for the two of you when you're together but it should really be beneficial for the trainee after you leave. So the worst possible outcome for the trainee would be they start this really cool line of investigation in your lab, and then after they leave, you're like their chief competitor. So in my lab, we have this unusual thing where I encourage postdocs to work on things that are related to the main kind of bread and butter projects of the lab, but not directly related, such that when they leave the lab, they can take everything that they worked on. And we actually have very hard fences um, and timelines about which we basically will stop working on this. And so, especially for people who are interested in academic careers, the best thing I can do for them is to provide them resources and a safety net and a sounding board for their ideas. And the best thing I get out of that is I have this amazing person in my lab for you know four to five years, and perhaps we'll write a couple of really great papers together But then, you know, other people will uh, see this person when they're out and successful. And I get like this, uh, you know, hidden, undeserved credit for having mentored them at some point in the career. When I use the word mentored them kind of loosely, I think we vastly underestimate that like the biggest kind of 
scientific credit one can earn in this business is not really the number of grants and number of papers you published. People talk about that all the time. I think the biggest thing is like, who are the people you've trained and what are they doing now? And, you know, what, what have they kind of accomplished? Because that's where you can really kind of make an impact. I'm really proud about the fact that like so many of the people in the lab are so well known in the field that people even forget the fact that they actually trained in my lab. So is there your a professional accomplishment you you are particularly proud of? Is, is this the, one of the biggest? Oh yeah, there's no question. This is not, there's nothing that comes close to this is that, uh, you know, you've trained people who, when people think about symposia topics, et cetera, they say, oh, what about this person? And you're on the committee and you're in kind of conflict. So you kind of have to point that out. But, you know, they came up out it without recognizing that these were your former trainees that they are basically, you know, mentioning because their work is the most creative um, and exciting in the field. There's absolutely no question. Like visiting with with trainees, I've even given talks in symposia where I had like the mini talk and they were giving the plenary talk. And as I said, that's not an insult to me. That's just the biggest compliment anybody can pay me. Can you think of a, the, the flip side? Can you think of a failure that you faced that from which you really learned something and, and, and what that might have been? I think the 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 you know the the, the one thing about uh, being successful in academic science or at least having a long career is like you really have to be willing to forgive yourself for mistakes you made because you're going to make a lot of them. You're going to make them at the level of hiring. You're going to make them at the level of lab choices and stuff. And you just have to focus on the fact that you you did make a lot of good choices, which is where you are. I think the one thing that I have not been able to forgive myself for was. Uh, basically, because I'm a little bit of a hands-off mentor, you know, I, I do rely a lot on people's honesty when it comes to kind of reporting their data and reporting their uh, facts. And, you know, for the most part, that trust has not been uh, mislaid, but it was actually mislaid in the case of one student uh, in my lab who I regretfully was not able to kind of catch. And we also wrote uh, a paper in taking into account these findings, which are basically fraudulent. And luckily for us, we discovered the fraud before the paper was actually accepted and made it into print. But you had asked me what what is the biggest fear that I have. That is by far my biggest fear is that we publish something that is publish something that is actually fraudulent that was clearly derived from fraud and has like no uh, truth behind it. So la- last question, you, you've been amazing because you covered lots of questions without us having to ask. But but the last question we had. So if you met yourself twenty years ago, maybe the day you came out of Professor Rao's class and you were just just start, just switched from chemical engineering to molecular biology, what, what's the advice you would give yourself? Well, I think uh, I would basically say don't gain all the weight that you've gained in the last 20 years because that is definitely, I was, I was a lot fitter then. I was able to uh, do a lot more exercises than I could do uh, now. But I think I think the, the, the thing is that, you know, it's not always like a, a straight path. The advice I would give is I think the advice I've followed is that every conversation is a potential opportunity, you know, whether it's a trainee and you can recruit them to your lab or it's a conversation with a colleague and it's an opportunity for a collaboration, etc. So don't dismiss these because they'll come and I can guarantee you they'll come to all of you listening to this podcast. The trick is consider and recognize where there are really good opportunities and where there is nothing. But if you dismiss it out of hand without even considering it, you might really miss out on perhaps the most exciting science and the most exciting trainees that your lab might ever recruit. 
So, so to wrap up, where can now people find out more ab about you and your work? Uh, well, uh, if they're interested in following up on the science, I would really recommend they follow the lab webpage. We try to keep that pretty updated and they can also see the papers that we've been actually publishing. Um, I would also encourage them to follow me on Twitter. And, you know, I also make it a point, especially if you're a student and you have a reasonable bio, like you're, you know, you describe who you are and what you work on. I try to follow you back as well. So I'm not... Uh, so what's your what, Twitter What's your Twitter? My Twitter handle? account is uh, simply at Harmeet Malik. So it's very easy to remember. It's not very creative, but it is easy to find. Straightforward. We'll, we'll put it in the in the show notes. Is there anything else you want to add, Harmeet? Last, last words of wisdom. I think surround yourself with people who can uh, both encourage you, but also call you out on your bullshit and take you down from the high horse that you could actually get. I, I can't emphasize how important it is to have peer mentors and surround yourself with people who don't underestimate you. Most of all, don't underestimate yourself. Uh, that's, the, that's the biggest lesson I would basically give you. Great. Thank you very much, Hamid. Hamid, it's been fantastic. You, we, we could keep going we, for hours. We'll have you back again. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> um. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us at The Lonely Pipette. We hope that you learned something new, that something resonated with your own experiences, or that you just enjoyed the science. Let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Lonely Pipette. And please, share it with your friends in the lab. If you want to join our community, you can subscribe to The Lonely Pipette mailing list or mail us by following the link available on our Twitter profile. You will receive the next episodes directly in your mailbox. How cool is that? Stay tuned for the next show. And remember, you might feel like a lonely pipette, but it doesn't mean you're alone. Tips from the lonely pipette can help you to do better science. A bientôt. A bientôt. Hey guys, one last thing to finish up. If you like the soundtrack of the show, you might want to know who is the artist behind it. The song is called Lovely Swindler by Amaria, a talented French artist who composes Electro Swing. We are really grateful for allowing us to use it. And if you like it too, the best thing to do is to share it. Thanks again and see you soon.